0: I'm so tired I could use a wake up elixir. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.comslash New Relic. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 114 of the Ruby Roads podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. Josh Susser. Witty, greeting. Avdi Grimm. Hello. David Brady currently not seeking asylum in Russia. This is David Brady. Katrina Owen. Hello. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest and that's Jose Valin. Hello. Uh, So we haven't had you on the show for a while, Jose.
1: Yes. What was the last time. A year ago, two years ago. Yeah, it was a while ago.
0: Yeah, it was a year or so ago. We read your book. I hear you hate Ruby now. Hey, no, yeah. that's not true.
2: That's why we didn't bring him back. He switched sides. Mm-hmm.
1: He's a traitor. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, he went to one of those functional languages or something.
1: Yeah, but I still love Ruby. I still spend half of my week working with Ruby. So I'm still doing a lot of stuff in Ruby. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Do, do you guys remember this old... Um... TV commercials for the the peanut butter cups. Uh, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you
3: got yes. chocolate peanut butter in my chocolate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so like, is Elixir getting peanut butter in chocolate, or getting chocolate
1: in peanut butter? I don't think I'm able to answer this question. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, if peanut the butter line were- the next line of the commercial is, "Hey, two great
3: tastes that go great <laughs> together." <laughs> Does that okay. Help? Yeah, well, so is functional programming more like peanut butter or chocolate? Uh, okay, so this is going in the wrong direction. So tell us about <laughs> Elixir. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> I love doing this show.
2: Why
1: did I get up for this? Come on. Well, it's hard. I, I did not come prepared, apparently. Yeah. Uh, Elixir is a functional uh, programming language. And... Uh, but, you know, saying that something is, like, functional uh, doesn't really help, I think. The reason for Alexxue being mainly a functional programming language is because we want concurrency, right? So uh, it's not per design functional, right? Like, the, being functional is not the goal. Yeah, functional uh, is a side effect, right? Yeah, exactly. So... Ouch. Well, it's it's a massive... They're, they're
3: oh, like, <laughs> 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 Massively dude, but, concurrent, dude, right? Dude, that was the best programming pun ever. Yes. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh! I didn't realize I'd done it!
3: <laughs> wow!
4: <laughs> I'm just going to drop the mic.
2: <laughs> Call me back at the pics.
4: Okay, so uh, so you were you must have been working with Erlang a lot.
1: Yes, to, yes. To
4: lead into this. I, I'm... I'm really curious like what kind of stuff you were doing with it that got you interested in, in doing this kind of uh you know highly concurrent programming.
1: Well so uh I, I've been using Erlang just internally. We we haven't uh there were not so far opportunities for uh me to use it like in for clients, for example, at Plataform Attack. And the but the reason I came to this is because it's actually funny. Uh, I oh not that funny because I got, uh, RSI. I got bad in my, in, your in my arm, right? Yeah. In my wrists and it could not work for a while. And then I said, well, apparently I have to read more. And then it was a period that I was re- really reading a lot and I was already familiar with relaying, I had to play with it. I always like to, to play and study different languages and I was, And then at this time, when I was reading stuff, I got the 7 Languages in 7 Weeks book, which is a very good book. I think you guys covered it, right? No. We We have not
2: It's on our list of things to do eventually.
1: Yes, you should definitely do it. And so I was reading the book, and it's very, very good. And it goes, so it starts with Ruby, and then it goes into I.O., and all the links, and then it goes into Prologue, Erlang, and then you have Scala, Clojure, and Haskell. And there's a lot of focus overall in concurrency in the book, right? So it starts with Ruby to tell a little bit about threads, but when it goes into I.O., it already starts to talk a little bit about the actor model. And then you go into Erlang, Clojure has for transactional memory, and then there's Haskell, with uh, the Haskell stuff that they do crazy stuff there. And and then I read this book and I said, like, the thing I liked the most was not any of the languages in particular, was their Link Virtual Machine and how everything worked. And that was when I fell in love. I said, like, whoa, this thing is great. Uh, I, I want to use th- this virtual machine. I want to use those things that are describing here, those concurrency mechanisms to build the software I have tried every day. And that's when I decided to go deeper in their Link Virtual Machine and study it more. And the way I started writing more Erlang code, and then the way I like to describe it is that I loved everything I saw, but I hated the things I didn't see. So there are, there were things, uh, now in the, in the language, not in the virtual machine, in the Erlang language, uh, that I really miss, like, uh, having a good construct for doing polymorphism, uh, the ability to metaprogram, and that's how Elixir came to life. And, yeah, and that's it. And I know there are like people doing really, uh, massively concurrent stuff in Erlang, but I'm, I'm not one of them. So even after some time when I get to, let's say I'm able to build a client work with Elixir, I still, I'm very web focused too, right? So it will be just, you know, a way to, Have to. I just want to be able to deploy a very in a very powerful web server, and if it has like fifty cores, it's just going to use all the fifty cores with no sweat, and the performance is going to be great.
3: One of the things that every time I hear or read anything about Elixir, I'm always struck by how optimized it is for happiness. Like it seems like all Mm -hmm. of the things that it allows you to do is just like making the developer happier. Is that on purpose? Well...
1: Say yes. <laughs> 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 yeah. I've, I've never... So it's not uh, a, di- a direct goal I have in mind. So because ha- happiness is... It's kind of... I can measure my happiness, but it's kind of hard to see how that's going to affect other people's happiness, you know? So if people have this impression in general, I i'm really I'm really, really glad, and the goals we have is like and maybe that's why it affects in happiness is the, the way we officially say the the goals of the language when I give a talk, I talk about productivity uh, I talk about extensibility and I talk about compatibility, which is compatibility with the language on machine so those are the goals and so with productivity and that probably make people happy because we want to give you tools, so you can write your code, they are going to feel productive on your code, Then we want to not only give like language mechanisms like macros, we also want to give you good tools, right? And extensibility is to be able to, you know, if that thing uh, does not have your use case in mind, I want to extend it, I want it to support my use cases. So, I think that if we can make people feel productive and they, they're they not fighting against the language, they're not fighting against the runtime, against the standard library, I think happiness is going to be a consequence of it.
3: Okay, I, I got another <laughs> softball for you. Uh, the, uh, where'd you get the name Elixir from? We all know naming uh, is, is like one of the hardest things to do, so how'd you come up with a great name like that?
1: I don't know. It was a moment of blessing, I guess, because Yehuda, he likes to make fun of me. He says that, uh, I Usually, the names I come up with are horrible. He said that if I had invented Rails, I would have called it Ruby MVC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I, I really can't remember from where it came up. I just say, like, oh, Wellixu. Yeah, it seems to be a good name. And yeah. <laughs>
0: well, so you well, did not but... get it from Wordoid?
1: <laughs> from from what?
4: From Wordoid.com? No,
1: it's
0: that's a real right. word.
1: That's, it's
4: what. That's...
3: It's where it's I get word. all of my names from.
1: Yeah. Really? Send, please send me the link. I need this. <laughs> <I'll>
2: <laughs> no, you need to not use this link. <laughs> it's great, actually. I love yeah, that site.
0: Yeah, we, we just spent Jose's next whole day.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's gone now. <laughs> Jose, I, I've got a question for you. So you've said uh, both in talking here and I was watching a video of you explaining Erlang this morning, uh, which is good and you've said their erlang virtual machine is our greatest asset and that you really design elixir to to use that asset optimally so maybe you could just tell us what is it the things about the erlang virtual machine that you just really want what makes you think that's so valuable
1: uh, that's a good question let me think a little bit so what one of the things so when i give a talk about uh, elixir and as i said like most of what I do, I, what I do with Elixir is thinking about in the future I'm going to use it for web applications, right? So I want to develop endpoints. I want to be able to build APIs with it or build systems that they are highly connected. So there are many things. I will start the, the story from scratch. So uh, their Virtual machine it was created by Ericsson, and at, at that time, it was at the, the 80, when they started the, the virtual machine. They're not really thinking about running many cores because it was not a problem back then, right? But the use case they had is that they had, for example, to build telephone switches. So a telephone switch is a machine somewhere that's receiving a bunch of connections and is uh, juggling all these connections at the same time. So from from here, you already get one thing: It needs to be able to do a lot of. You want a switch to be able to handle as many connections at the same time, so it it has this it needs to have this ability of like handling stuff concurrently. Uh, they also uh, wanted robustness because if you need to install a switch in the middle of the forest, right, uh, you don't want to go there every two weeks to give maintenance to it. And uh, when you have a call, you need the uh, different switches to talk to each other. Okay, because you need to route to different switches, or maybe the person is already busy talking, uh, the connection is already in another switch. So they also have this distributed aspect, have different nodes, they need to be able to talk to each other and different information. So they got all those things together and they they make it the virtual machine. And uh, the reason I think Erlang came up... uh, because it, it's from the end of the 80s, right? And in I think 2004, 2005, people started to use Erling more. And I think it's because people realized that this this thing that I'm de- describing, this telephone switch, is exactly what is happening on the web, right? You have a server there. It's receiving a bunch of connections all the same time. It needs to handle all those connections. Uh, there are requests. There are responses. You need to talk to an internal API. So it has it have really a bunch of features in there. And I say, wait, I think that if I build software in here, I'm, I'll be able to build great software. Uh, I'll be able to build robust software. I'll be able to build distributed software. I'll be able to build concurrent software. So those are all the things I, I saw in there. And that's what I'm going the direction of.
2: You mentioned the routing just there that you're kind of thinking about. Uh, routing, like say for web applications, and uh, that was actually a prominent example in the video I watched uh, this morning. It was it was kind of interesting. Can you talk about why you think that relates to the Erlang virtual machine?
1: Yeah, so so that's more kind of a, an indirect thing. That's more of using the features of the language uh, and the features provided by by the Erlang virtual machine. So one of the things in Alexir uh, is that. And most of the times when I say Alexir, you can also think uh, we can think of Erlang in the virtual machine. Uh, one of the, the main things there is that you do pattern matching, right? And a function can have many clauses. And then you can put guard, you can put specification in those clauses, right? So you can say you can what you can do is that you can check if a string starts with hello at the function clause. And then if it starts with hello, you can do something. And then if the string does not start, so hello, you can have a fallback clause, you're going to do something different. And you can really do a lot of complex stuff. You can match on lists, you can match on tuples, extract elements, so it's a really powerful construct. And this is handled by the learning virtual machine. So it is, the virtual machine gets all those patterns and they need to compile to the fastest way possible. Right. They, they want to optimize. So they have been optimizing those patterns for 20 years already. And it's like super, super fast. And the thing about uh, a routing, like uh, the routing in Rails, is that it is exactly the same stuff. You give it a bunch of patterns, which are URLs. And you want to dispatch to an endpoint. You want to do some specific action when the URL match. Okay. So what people do uh, when they are implementing routers that they go with uh, the most naive possible, uh, uh, most naive solution possible, which is, well, if I have a render route, I'm going to check those routes one by one, right? Until I find one that matches. And what you can do, and, and that's the same idea of pattern matching. Aaron Patterson, uh, we can search the link later. He, so what Aaron did, for example, in Rails is that he changed the Rails router. I think it was for Rails 3.2, and he used exactly the pattern matching theory to compile the routes into a graph. So you don't need to match one by one and find one that match. You go in the graph. And then if you have a starting node, you already know where you can go and where you can't go, right? So you can very quickly say if there is a match or not. If, if routes, they have, for example, the same prefix, you don't need to m- match on those seven, eight different prefixes and on the sub patterns. You just create a graph of the directions you can go and cannot go. So what we did for Elixir is that since we have pattern match on the language, what we do is that, and we have the, this metaprogramming ability, what we do is that we get a routes file and we compile this thing into those pattern matchings that are highly, highly optimized by the, by the virtual machine. And that makes it like super, super, super fast. And uh, the implementation is like 150 lines of code or 100 lines of code of, a decent router that's going to be one of the fastest router you can think of writing. So that's it's really nice. It's just a coincidence of having a feature in the language, having something that the virtual machine really knows how to optimize, and putting those things together.
3: That's cool. I like that because it's um, it's the way that I. Well, it corresponds to how I like to do stuff in object-oriented languages where you want to get rid of conditionals and case statements and things like that and just use polymorphism and the virtual machine's super-optimized method dispatch mechanisms. And you're doing the same kind of thing by getting rid of those conditionals and case statements by using something highly optimized that's built into the virtual machine. But it's great when you do that because it's it's like you're going with the grain and... The language just helps you do that. Did that yeah. make sense?
1: <laughs> yeah, that that makes total sense. And yeah.
4: So so far, we've we've talked about mostly things that Elixir kind of shares in common with its Erlang base. Um, I have a lot of questions. I'm, I'm a big language nerd. I have a lot of questions about your choices for Elixir specifically. First of all, it seems like a lot of the syntax is Ruby inspired. There are obviously a few other inspirations in there—a little tiny bit of Python and stuff like that, but. Doc th-
1: strings.
4: Yeah. Um, what's that?
2: doc strings. strings. He took the best part of Python.
4: Oh yeah, I was actually <laughs> thinking about. I was actually thinking about triple equals, but yeah, yeah. Uh, like so, having having done some functional programming, it felt kind of weird doing functional programming with a Ruby style syntax. I'm curious. I mean, is is the Ruby style syntax basically just there for approachability for people coming from? Ruby or Ruby-like languages? Or do you actually feel like Ru- like that kind of syntax is a good fit for functional programming? It felt felt kind of strange to me.
1: Syntax is kind of hard to, to discuss. Obviously, since I've been doing for the, I don't know, uh, five years of my life, I was doing a lot of Ruby, so it naturally comes a lot of uh, inspiration from there. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that I think gives it a lot of Ruby feel, and is that have optional parentheses and i think that, like this is one of the single things that give it a lot of this ruby feeling and probably the do end blocks
4: right. and so although although there aren't a lot of parentheses um a lot of like mandatory parentheses in say haskell so that that's kind of i mean that's that's haskellish as well
1: yeah yeah that's true so we, I ha- we have like a couple design rules and I was coming up with the, the language and and the current syntax, uh, Yehuda also helped me in the very first versions, which is basically what I wanted to have is that I knew that I wanted to have macros. And the way I wanted to approach macros in Elixir, I, I basically I wanted to have metaprogramming. Let me fix that. I wanted to have metaprogramming. Sure. And I said, well, one of the ways I have metaprogramming is macros, So that's what I'm going to look at. And then you see the things that allow you to do macros and macros for them to be any kind of way sane. You need to have a regular syntax. Right? Right. Uh, And having a regular, so if you go to the extreme opposite, you have Lisp, right? It's extremely regular syntax. Clojure gets a little bit away by allowing you (laughs) to add brackets, curly, and some special stuff. But it's extremely regular syntax. But didn't and, and that's Lisp.
4: what makes metaprogramming in, in Lisp so sane, is that you, know, you can see the a, you can just look at it and see the AST, and so it's very easy to understand the transformations that you make when you're metaprogramming.
1: Yes, exactly. So I say like Lisp is like what you see is what you get, right? What, what you're looking right. at it is what you're getting. And and I wanted something midterm. I didn't want Lisp. We already have uh, two other Lisp implementations in an environmental machine. Okay. And I'm not particularly a Lisp fan. So I find it very elegant, but I don't find it uh beautiful if it makes sense. So I said, okay, I want to, I want to have something else, and then I needed to have a regular syntax, and that's why when you go to Elixir, everything has do end blocks. So when you define a module, you need to put do end because module is not a keyword. It's something uh, defining a module is not a keyword. It's like anything else in the language, and everything. Translates to a very common AST. So the way you represent operators in the AST, even though we have the operators uh, sign operator notation, it's Mm -hmm. it it, it's common with everything else in the language. We have a very our AST. Although it's not what you see, what to get the steps that you need to do mentally to go from one step to the other, uh, is there are very few right. There are very few translations that you need to do, and that's what one one of the first rules of the language. Okay. So, and even for when we got that, we still had, it was still very, very verbose. And then I was adding constructs little by little that was getting those common cases and coming in and, and make them easier to write. Um, uh, right. so for example, uh, the do end. In, in Alex, it's kind of hard to, to to say like with words without not showing the code, but the do end in Elixir is the equivalent of putting parentheses, of wrapping our stuff with parentheses, so it's a convenience of saying a block of code, because in particular, if I have parentheses there, it would get very weird and clunky easily, so it's like, okay, let's abstract this pattern, and then we got a lot of stuff out of it, and then when we were abstracting, it often came, well, I am getting this, I, I'm getting... So I want to solve this problem and say, oh, let's look at Ruby. Oh, Ruby has do and blocks. Let's use do and blocks then. So that's yeah. one of the things we approached it. There was also, uh, I tried to keep the data structure syntax all from Erlang. So I tried to keep also a lot from what we have in Erlang. So tuples, they look the same in Erlang. Lists, they look the same as in Erlang. Uh binaries, they are extremely similar. They're not exactly the same uh but they are very similar. So there was also a lot let's do like Erlang for those data structures, those mm-hmm. operators, unless they don't make sense, right? Uh, because we have a couple of those in Erlang where they're not making any sense. For example, the less than equal operator in Erlang is the equal sign first and then the less than sign is opposite. Mm. Right? Okay. So you say okay, no, we're not having this. And then mm-hmm. we we make the notation uh where we have ever else. And I think, so I don't get, well, I'm obviously biased, but because you have like pattern matching and tuples. So if you go to case expressions, like if you get a case in elixir with pattern matching or a receive, it feels functional to me. The only thing that doesn't feel uh, very functional to me, and that's probably where some of your sensations, your feeling is coming are the, the name it function definitions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even more, because in functional programming, it's very common for you to have like a bunch of inline definitions, one close to the other. And mm. those, they don't look as great in, in Elixir, in my opinion. It's not, right. it's not as good as I would get in Haskell or Camo right. or, or even in Erlang. Like, a one-line definition in Erlang for me, a one functional definition in Erlang for me, is, is prettier than the one in Elixir. So that may give a huge Yeah.
4: I think you've but, actually nailed something I hadn't completely identified in looking at the, some of the code that I wrote. Is, is yeah when you have a bunch of function definitions of the same function for different arguments next to each other it's not quite as pretty as, you, as you'd see in like a Haskell
1: yeah so we have a little bit of that but those are things that we discussed and you know we could insert a trade-off but it would be like a special case and then yeah. we decided to well we cannot make everything look good all the time so right. uh, it's just a trade-off we need to have
4: I was also kind of surprised that the the uh, the lambdas, the anonymous functions, look so different from named named functions. Like the syntax seems so much so
1: different. Ah, uh, yeah. So uh, this comes up a lot. The and that's because they are actually very different. Uh, and there was a lot of people that say like, wait, they they look different things, and that's because the Erling virtual machine treats them as very different. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, um, not necessarily internally i'm not sure about the internals that much how they are treating it uh but on how you you're calling them in the code, and uh i need to so one of the things for example yeah i'm not going to have i i had an example in my mind but it just escaped me we can go back to this Uh, that's right um I,
4: i have another question uh about the just the overall language design uh, a lot of the stuff that I've messed with so far is just kind of, you know, a, a different syntax over a functional core, you know, over the the Erlang, you know, and a lot of it is very, very familiar. Semantically, a lot of it's very familiar from other functional programming languages, the pattern matching, the recursion, um, you know, d- defining a few different versions of a function, stuff like that, passing functions around a lot. Do you have any currently or, or in future, do you plan on, I mean, are there any like big ideas semantically that you want to add to it that you wouldn't typically see? in a functional programming language um, or is it basically going to be the, the, the kind of semantics that you usually see? Uh, it's not a very well phrased question, I'm sorry.
1: That's a, a, a good question and the Darlene virtual machine doesn't allow you to do much as a language. I mean you can try to do different stuff, but it's really going to be suboptimal. And mm-hmm. so the first Elixir version was horrible. Uh, when I started <laughs> writing it, I was really, there There was, well, first, I didn't know per, very much what I was doing. So I, I knew that I wanted to have some things. So I knew, so if we go back to the goals, I knew I wanted to have a way of achieving polymorphism. But I didn't know how I wanted to do that. And then, for example, I say, well, let's try to have the polymorphism the way I know about, which is by having objects, right? And then I'm going to call things in those objects and I'll get polymorphism out of it. And then I was really trying to push, go in other semantic directions. And that's what made made it uh, not good because first, having immutable object objects is a disaster, right? So <laughs> if you have objects and it's hard for you to... and you can't mutate them, it becomes really, really tricky Right. So,
4: Well, I mean, I, I think of the, the, of you know, Erlang slash Elixir objects as being the processes, right?
1: Yeah, so this is one of the way that we look at it. But I I, re- I was really trying to add objects, like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the data, the, the, the struct thing, object, and then I could add stuff in it. And right. then it was like new semantics. Uh, uh, performance was completely horrible. It felt mm-hmm. weird to use because you start to go into things like, you can't actually, if everything's immutable, when you have, and that's why having objects, immutable objects, it's so hard because you can think have objects that depend each other. You have a tree, right? So when you need to update something, if you need to update something nested in the tree, you need to go all the way up in the tree, propagating your changes. Mm-hmm. Right, so if you have a nested object dependency and you want to change uh, a leaf in this tree, it's very complicated because you need to propagate the changes all the way up, and that's what felt hard. And then, so and there were a lot of this stuff that I was like going to the problems, and I was like saying, "Well, I know the solution, and that solution was obviously not working," and that was when I decided, "Let me stop whatever I'm doing here." And if you go to the commit graph, you can see a period of inactivity. And that's when I really decided to study other languages and how people were solving those problems that I wanted to solve, but in functional programming languages. So I wanted to have polymorphism. And then I say, well, apparently Haskell, they are using this type class thing. Go has come up with this idea of interfaces and closure has protocols. And They say, well, this protocol thing looks great. Uh, the other links there are statically typed, Elixir dynamically typed, As closure is the one that I, I, feels closer to Elixir. So I know I won't implement uh, protocols in Elixir now. right? And then uh, when you really want to manage a state, we have solutions for this. In the Haskell community, for example, they have this thing called lenses and traversals that allows you to update deeply nested structures. So what I'm getting at is that if you're adding... Uh, more semantics, they'll probably come from the functional side than from anywhere else. Mm -hmm.
4: So you might, so in other words, you might add some functional features that aren't present in base Erlang,
1: but probably not
4: so, but probably not so much, you know, stuff from procedural or or OO languages.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we already do that, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. One one of the things, so if we start going to the differences between uh, Elixir and, and Erlang, so one of the things is I already talked about is having metaprogramming, is having protocols, which is a way to achieve polymorphism. And we have, like, in general, a very complete standard library. Mm -hmm. So we have, so, and now I'm going to do a little bit of criticism of Erlang. So in Erlang, for example, you have uh, a list type, you have an array type. You have a dictionary type, and if you want to iterate, for example, a dictionary. If you want to iterate a list, if you want to iterate an array, if you want to iterate a set, they all have a specific function, functions. Functions right, it.
4: right, and that, that was exactly the kind of insanity that that Rich Hickey was was uh, coming out against when he when he you know like did the protocols in in uh, closure, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know it, it's it's very hard, and and often they use different names. So there is the fact that you need to know different APIs and there is all the semantic loading of like having to know those different names and what they mean in those specific contexts, right? right. So, and then we have the Enum, Enumerable Protocol, which is uh, you can give uh, anything that w- you teach the language how to reduce, you're going to be able to use those functions. And then we can keep the, the set of words the developer needs to know and work every day. We keep them very small. And that's mm. extremely important.
4: Yeah, yeah. I guess that's one of the the bonuses of writing a new language is, is you get to to start all over with the standard library and and uh, make it sane, make it consistent. Yeah. Consistent, I guess, is the the, the big thing. Um, although, it, um, speaking of like your standard library and you know and the 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 airline er, br- libraries, which are a little different, there's always, I think, a, a fear when somebody's getting into a new language that's built on another language that at some point they're going to you know they're going to they're going to start using it more and more they might start using it in production and then at some point they're going to run into a really thorny issue you know that requires them to know the base language to to resolve it know i guess languages like ruby you know they, they they handle that by being you know implemented in a language that at least most people know a little bit of like c is that something that that at this point people are are going to face with elixir or do you feel like you can get quite a lot done without having to know uh, an erlang
1: I feel you can get quite a lot done because, uh, so I was talking like, we, you cannot really change the semantics, right? I was talking. And if you if you are on Elixir, you can stay on Elixir land. And then if you need to step a little bit into Erlang, it's not going to look that foreign anymore. Of course, the syntax in, is different, but at that point, you already absorbed most of the semantics, right? But even flow, so if you're starting... Let's suppose you want to use Alexir today to your, you want to replace your Ruby use for scripting and you want to use Alexir, right? You're going to use Alexir and you'll be fine and you probably won't have to, to worry about Erlang and you won't have occasions to worry about Erlang today. So the situation though is that, um, that you meet today is that if you want to build, so Erlang shifts with this thing called OTP. Which is kind of, uh, the Erlang standard library, right? And OTP has all the patterns that you need to, to build those distributed systems, those concrete systems we we're talking about. And so if you want to use those today, you need to call Erlang functions. And this is a message that I'm sending since the beginning of Alexir. The Erlang virtual machine is our strongest asset and the Alexir oh, and the Erlang OTP, the way they have of built building those systems, it's our asset too. So sometimes people say, wait, I think we should wrap this library and then say like, no, no, we're not write, uh, wrapping any libraries, right? You need to be able to learn and how to use them. But it's just a matter of you like opening and earning documentation page and then reading what are the arguments and passing the arguments to it. But the names, like, oh, here's expecting a list. What they're calling a list there is going to be a list in Elixir. So mm-hmm. the semantics the types, they're, they, they are all the same. So it doesn't feel like a, a huge hit. There is one thing which is a blocker for us ever getting into 1.0. And it's one of the Elixir like secondary goals, which is to improve the error messages. The error messages in Erlang, they are very bad, very, very bad. So, <laughs> um, I want to, it's one of the goals to have like if something fails, we want to give you a nice message of what failed and how it failed and how it, and how you sh- what it should do from there. So every time I work with Alex here, you call something and you get a weird message. You can open up a bug. And if we can improve it, we're definitely going to improve it. Right. Can uh, I ask a question do-
3: about that? Sure. So is this something that you can do only when for the, the Elixir standard library, or can you also give better, like improve the error messages on top of, of airline when you're delegating to the airline standard
1: library? So we, we can improve many things on that side. Yeah. So, uh, it's funny because there's Basho, right? The company that runs Riyak, uh, on top of their name virtual machine. They created uh, Riyak and they have very similar goals. I was talking to them and then some of the goals are very similar. Like they want also to improve the, the error messages because sometimes people, they are starting the Riyak node and then when they are starting it, they get bad match, right? Like what, what?
4: <laughs> that's one of my notes. That's one of my notes is that, you know, when, when, so I, I, I like that it's a neat pattern, you know, where you say like the tuple of OK and a value matches, you know, matches against uh, IO.open or whatever the, the call is to open a file. Uh, and so that's only going to match when when it returns a tuple that includes OK rather than, than error as its first element. That's kind of a cool pattern. But then the error that you get out of that is match error, no match of right side value, error comma, you eno know, end, which is a terrible way to say file not found.
1: Yes, exactly. So th- there is a, actually a story about this. Uh, a friend, I was talking to a friend. He was telling like the first time he went to use Ryak, he installed, did all the things, and then he tried to run the node, and then he got exactly bad match, right? W- and he tried to run bad match, bad match. It was, the error was like exactly the, this message, error, you know, and then he, he said, well, I, let me try to fix this, right? And then he had a, this tech trace, and until like two, three years ago, uh Erlang did not have line numbers in stack traces. But he he was trying he was trying to start right and it was getting irrelevant, and then we had no lines in stack trace. So he we were able he was able to find the module, the function, and then he figured out what was happening is that they were trying to open to create a log file, but they didn't have permission to write to that directory. Okay. And what he was getting out of it was a bad match. So the things we and the way we are trying to improve this, so these in particular, we cannot improve it, right? It's a bad match that's coming from inside the virtual machine, and we can format it nicely, but we can't change what is happening is how the software is written. So, right. so the way we change the, the way we tackle this particular issue in Alexir is that uh in Alexir, the bank method, the bank functions, they are for exceptions to to signal that that. Uh, function it can raise an exception explicitly and we follow the a-, a quick the question goals. about
4: that is that is that syntax uh, i mean can i turn anything to a bang method or is that only when it's specifically provided by the library
1: you need to sp- explicitly provide it we cannot do it okay. automatically because it depends on which exception you want to raise what is the information you want to put in the exception but right. we keep the the following design goals that exceptions must not be used for flow control